This evening's reading is John chapter 11, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 44. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? 
Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is God's word. Let's pray as we look at John 11 together. Our Father God, we need your hope. We need your help at this time. Please, Father, through Jesus Christ, would you breathe hope into us for your glory. Amen. I must level with you. I must level with the British public. Many more families are going to lose loved ones before their time. They were striking words from the Prime Minister a week or so ago. We're not used to politicians speaking to us so bluntly and directly, especially when it comes to bad news. You see, when it comes to death, we're used to a conspiracy of silence. It is the last taboo in our culture. I find it when I conduct funerals, especially for those without Christian faith, that there is this determination to get through the event without acknowledging the reality of what has happened. Conspiracy of silence around death. And what all this means is that we are probably less well prepared than any other culture in history to deal with the reality of death. And so when it comes, we, we trivialise it by laughing it off. We say, uh, well, she's moved to a log cabin. He's making a long distance call from a horizontal phone booth. She's tending towards a state of chemical equilibrium. Ha ha ha. We sentimentalise it. We suspend our, our deeply cherished and proudly held scientific beliefs. And we cling on to ideas that come from nowhere other than Hollywood. As we say, oh, they've gone to a better place where all their dreams have been fulfilled. But then someone you love dies. And for all the talk of them still being with us. Well, you know the ugly reality that that is the very last thing that's true. They're gone. You can't sort out a broken relationship with a relative once they're dead. And we talk at the moment about six feet of, of social isolation. Come death, there is six feet of total isolation. And so some of us drink ourselves numb, others of us busy ourselves with work so that the pain will stop and the questions will fade and we can get on with our lives. But every now and then, an event happens which confronts not just individuals, but the whole of a culture with the undeniable reality of death. Writing at the height of the Second World War as it raged around him, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. What does war do to death? It certainly does not make it more frequent. 100% of us die and the percentage cannot be increased. It can put several deaths earlier, but I hardly suppose that is what we fear. Yet war does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. War makes death real to us. 
What he wrote of war is also true of coronavirus. It has brought death out of hiding. Suddenly it's there in the news every day. It's in our conversations with friends and family. It's in the questions children ask us that we just cannot answer. It's in the fears that perhaps keep us awake at night. Now, I think I need to gently and firmly ask each of you, what is your answer in the face of death? All of us will face death, whether our, the death of others, certainly death of ourselves, and we need an answer, an explanation. The various religions and philosophies and counselling strategies of the world seek to give an explanation and offer some comfort, but ultimately they're powerless in the face of death. But at the heart of the passage we just read is a man who stares down death and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Here is a man who claims he can turn death from a full stop into a comma. We're coming into, this is the end of the first half of John's gospel, John's reliable historical eyewitness account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the first half, there have been seven signs, seven miracles, seven pieces of evidence to prove who Jesus is, none other than God in human flesh, and to enable us to put our trust in him that we might share in the life he offers. And this now is the final climactic sign that he is God is the Lord of life who triumphs over the grave. I want you to, to see as we look at this passage together that Jesus provides the comfort and the hope that we need in the face of death. He is the answer we need. He provides the comfort and the hope that we need in the face of death. The points should come up on the screen as we go. But firstly, uh, just as we get into the passage really, in the first seven verses, notice with me that those Jesus loves get sick and die, and it makes no sense to us. Those Jesus loves get sick and die, and it makes no sense to us. Verse one. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. So a friend of Jesus named Lazarus is ill. And when Jesus hears about it, he declares he's going to use this as an opportunity to reveal God's glory. Verse four, when he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And then. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill. He stayed where he was two more days. Puts on the kettle takes out the paper and sits down for two days. I mean, it makes no sense. But actually, come back, the, the two simple truths at the heart of verse 3 don't make sense. How can they fit together? Jesus loves Lazarus and, and Lazarus gets sick. Worse still, verse 14, he dies. How can that be? Surely, if God loves you and God has the power to heal sickness, then God won't let you get sick. Or if you do get sick, he'll, he'll heal you from the sickness. Our confusion deepens in verse 6. The dear friend of Jesus is sick enough to be at death's door. So why does he wait? Why does he wait? Why does he make them go through this? 
I had to make a 999 phone call last week for somebody with coronavirus whose breathing had become so terrible that they could no longer speak. And so they texted me in desperation saying, please call 999. I think I might be dying. It's a fairly frantic call to make. And I dialed 999 and for 18 minutes, I was on hold. When someone's texted you to say, I think I'm dying, 18 minutes on hold seems an unconscionably long time. Actually, what it shows is our emergency services are overwhelmed. They need our support and our prayer. But it was terrifying to wait and wait. Jesus hears Lazarus is ill, ill enough that he may die, and he waits two whole days. Why would we do that? Well, we don't find out really until the end of the account. Had Jesus gone straight to Lazarus, though, well, the disciples would have learned, wow, Jesus can heal sick people. They've seen that before. But because Jesus waits, the disciples learn, oh, Jesus can not only heal sick people, Jesus has power even over death. He is the Lord of life. They see his glory in a way they would never have understood had Jesus not waited. Now, I'm sure that in the coming days, many of us will know the agony and confusion this family must have known in that time of waiting. Some, perhaps many of us, will get coronavirus. I know some of you already have. Some, perhaps many of us, will know people we love die of coronavirus. And it will lead to questions about the character of Jesus. If, if he loves us, why does he let this person get sick? If he loves us, why doesn't he answer my prayers for healing? If he loves us, why am I waiting for him to do something? And there is a vital lesson for us in these verses. Even those Jesus loves get sick and die. But it never makes sense to us at the time. Jesus doesn't let this happen because he doesn't love them. As with Lazarus, so with us. He lets this happen because he has something better planned. Now, what that plan might be, we may never know in this life. God's providential purposes are just baffling to us when we, when we try to, to unravel them from this side of the picture. But God gave us this account in the Bible so that we might look on and learn, so that we might trust in our own waiting, in our own confusion, as we see that he most certainly had good purposes in this situation, that is waiting was wise and wonderful, for he had something much better planned. Trust him. Trust him. He is wise and good, even when people get sick, and even when we wait, and he seems to do nothing. What then does he do when he comes? Well, first we see he encourages us with his hope, he comforts us with his compassion, and he commands the dead to live. He encourages us with his hope. Verse 17. Finally, Jesus arrives. On his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So he comes to a family that is broken by grief and loss, for Lazarus is already dead. Verse 20. When Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. But what hope can he offer in this situation? By very definition, death is the end of hope. Maybe for us, but not for Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, oh, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Bertram Russell quipped, when I die, I rot. And it is one of the aspects of death that horrifies us most. It's a kind of nagging fear at the the margins of our consciousness that for, for all my strivings, for all my postings, for all my work, my relationships, that one day my life will vanish and there will be nothing left. And within a few short years, no one will remember me. I mean, who amongst us knows the names of all of our own great grandparents? It's a terrifying thought that one day we'll just be gone. But not according to Jesus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Put your trust in me and you will live. What he promises is not incarnation, a life force living on in someone else, but resurrection, the same me with a new body and a new life, but a life which is eternal and incorruptible that goes on forever and ever. He is the fountain of life and in him there is eternal life. If if life is like a battery for us that is slowly running down, Jesus is the mains electricity. And when we plug into him, when we trust in him, we will share in his eternal, eternal life. Secondly, Jesus comforts us with his compassion. He encourages us with his hope and then he comforts with compassion. Now, it's very interesting that in verse 32, do you see Mary says the same thing to Jesus that Martha said to him back in verse 21. Uh, We'll start at verse 28. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, just like Martha, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But notice Jesus treats them very differently. You see, others might say, oh, I know what you're going through. But of course they don't. Not really. No one knows exactly what's going on in my heart, the grief that I face, the pain I carry. But Jesus is God. He can see into the depths of our hearts. And so he knows what it is that Mary needs to hear. And he knows what it is that Martha needs to hear. He encourages Martha with hope, but now he comforts Mary with compassion grieving with her at the awfulness of death. Here is a God who knows exactly the comfort that you need in the griefs you face. Look as as we see what he he says in the face of death and how he, he shows us the awfulness of death, really, in these verses. Firstly, verse 33 to 37. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
That phrase deeply moved in spirit and troubled that appears again as he approaches the tomb, verse 38, once more deeply moved. It's hard to translate well, but it means it's a very intense phrase, actually. It's easy to miss that in this translation. It conveys outrage and indignation. He's, he's trembling with rage as he encounters death. I find that so encouraging. Death is not nothing. Many of us will know that already. The Hollywood movies are lying. The trite cards are just that. They are trite. Death is brutal. Death is bitter. Death is horrid. And when Jesus encounters death, his reaction is the same as, as that of us when we hear about a horrendous crime on the news. He knows that it should not be. The Bible is realistic. It calls death our final enemy. And I find that so wonderfully comforting that Jesus, the Lord of life, sees the reality of death. We're not being naive or weak if we struggle to come to terms with it. There is a sense in which we should never make our peace with the reality of death in this world. Our souls were designed to live forever. We know that deep down and wonderfully Jesus tells us we're right to feel like that here. He trembles and rages at death. But secondly, in the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. Two short words, but great comfort. Here is a God with the power to create the vast countless galaxies with just one word. Here is a God who, in a few short minutes, will raise Lazarus to life just by speaking to him, reconstituting his rotting flesh and making him live again. And yet, as he sees the impact of death on this poor, broken family, as he comes and sees the tombstone of a loved friend, well, he weeps. He weeps. And in Jesus, in these verses, we see a right response to death. It is awful and it is painful. There was a striking interview uh, a year or so back with the Sky News presenter, Colin Brazier. His wife had died and he... He felt he had to speak up before her funeral. It was just, the headline was very stunning. It was, leave your Hawaiian shirts at home. He wrote, there is a pressure to make funerals an upbeat celebration of life, everyone wearing bright colours and being all jolly. It is unfair on children to insist the funeral should mean rejoicing at a life past. Maybe grown-ups can handle the cognitive dissonance, but I seriously doubt children can. Wearing black gives people a license to get upset. To treat a funeral like Ladies' Day at Ascot trivialises death and inhibits the necessary catharsis of grieving. It's my own experience, too, of, of conducting funerals, is that there is a pressure to, to just avoid the reality and try to get on with life. But I think Christians can get this terribly wrong, too. I remember my own confusion when my brother died when I was 25, I, I thought, why do I, should I feel bad? I mean, uh, Jesus will, will raise him up at the last day and he's now happy in heaven. Uh, shouldn't, I, shouldn't I just feel happy about the fact that he's now in heaven? Well, thankfully, I was given wise advice based on what Jesus does, says here. It is not just okay, it is good, it is right to mourn and grieve when we encounter death. Death is awful. And it is unhealthy to act as if death is nothing. Grieve and mourn with those who grieve and mourn. 
I was chatting with her, this about someone, and they said they'll always remember what their mum said when a friend was brutally bereaved. She said, I'm going around to cry with them. And that surely is right. Uh, Romans 12, 15 encourages Christians, mourn with those who mourn, not, tell them not to worry, death is nothing, Jesus will raise the dead, so cheer up. Don't make hope a crushing burden. Jesus teaches us to comfort with compassion, to grieve in the face of death. Lastly, though, Jesus commands the dead to live. I mean, to hear that Jesus cares about people and cries with them as they die, well, you'd expect that from any good moral teacher. But what no good teacher should ever do is what Jesus then does. Verse 38. Once more deeply moved, Jesus came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the brother of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odour. He's been dead for four days. But Jesus said, did I not tell you, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you. You've heard me. I know you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you have sent me. Good moral teachers do not stand at the graveside of a grieving family and say, open up the grave, dig up the ground and open the coffin, pull out the body. You don't do that. But a couple of men pluck up the courage to do what Jesus has said, presumably covering their faces because as uh, the old version of verse 39 had it, but Lord, he stinketh. And they heave the great gravestone away and then turn and look at Jesus. Verse 43, when he'd said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Some commentators say the reason Jesus says Lazarus come out is if he just said come out, every grave on earth would have emptied and every dead man, woman and child would have come back to life. But can you imagine? Can you imagine the shock of being Mary or Martha, the, the joy, the, the surprise, the overwhelming sense of wonder? I mean, can you imagine being Lazarus suddenly back alive, staggering out of this grave? Jesus Christ had the power to release Lazarus from the death because Jesus Christ is no ordinary man. He is God with the power of life in him. When death swallowed up Jesus on the cross, it couldn't hold him. Three days later, he burst triumphant out of the grave. And he who lived and died now lives forever and will never die again. He has the keys of death and Hades and eternal life is his gift to all who believe. Death is still uh, horrible, bitter and brutal, but Jesus has defeated it and it no longer is the final word for those who trust in him. And if you, if you know that hope, if you know that hope, then can I say now is not the time to remain silent. Now is the time to share that hope. Now is the time to speak of Jesus and the joy that he brings there was a, a report, I think it probably was fake news, a, a week or so ago that someone was trying to buy up a company that said it was quite close to creating a vaccine for coronavirus. And their intention was to ensure that only the people from their country would have access to the cure, which is an appalling thing to do. I mean, it probably was fake news, who knows. But, but if you have the cure, to, to keep it just for a few, it's a terrible, terrible thing to do. 
If you know Jesus Christ, if he's forgiven your sins, if you trust in him for eternal life, then you have the cure for the universal human condition of death. And now is not the time to keep quiet. Now is not the time to hoard the vaccine. Now is the time to find ways to tell people, to gently but boldly proclaim that Jesus has the answer to our deepest fear. He is the resurrection and the life. Death remains the ultimate statistic in life, as George Bernard Shaw quipped, one out of every one people die. But we don't have to, we don't have to pretend, we don't have to dumb it down with silly jokes, sentimentalise it with Hollywood nonsense. We have a better hope than drowning it out with noise and busyness. In Jesus Christ, there is comfort and compassion as we grieve. The God who knows what it is to stand at the graveside of a much-loved friend. The God who weeps with us in our weeping. But better still, the God who rose out of his own grave. And the God who called Lazarus come out. And who one day will call all who trust in him to come out of our graves and join him for eternal life forevermore. All of us must walk through the door of death one day. The only question is, where will it lead you and who will you trust to take you through? Let me urge you, encourage you, rejoice that I can offer you the one who says I am the resurrection and the life. Put your trust in him. Let him hold your hand and lead you through. And you need never fear death again. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ is the answer to death. In Jesus Christ is resurrection life. Help us, we pray, to trust in him that we might be free from the fear of death. And help us, we pray, to offer this hope, this life, to tell the world that is dying, that there is one who can save us. There is one who can give us eternal life. For his glory, we pray. Amen.